Hello, everyone, and welcome to 1970, or at least a reasonable facsimile thereof. You're listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week we take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years and we report on all the hockey news and other sporting news that was taking place during that time period. This week, we're looking at the week of September 13th to 19th. 1970. As we usually tell you each week, our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest archive of online newspapers, and without their support, we couldn't get you all the great news tidbits we bring you each week. And we're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. The Breakwall folks make some of the finest craft beer in Ontario and they have outstanding pub food as well. We'd love to meet any of our listeners at the break wall for a burger and a beer if you're ever in the Niagara area. We'd also like to remind you about our new Patreon account. Now this is a place where you can donate to our project and in exchange we plan on providing some very interesting bonus content which will be available to the subscribers. Some of the items we're working on right now include a very in-depth look into the circumstances surrounding the death of Terry Sachuk, especially looking closely at how the media covered the story and I'll be able to provide some perspective on the case based on my uh, experience gained from my policing career. We'll also have the full interviews with some very uh, interesting hockey people that we provided over the past season. And some of these people, their careers spanned from the early 1950s right into the 21st century. And we'll have a lot more for you as well. Lots of uh, features and issues during that time period about hockey personalities of the day. You can go to patreon.com slash hockey50years to donate. And we thank you very much. Last week, we had a few interesting stories we gave you. We learned about a budding young NHL superstar, namely Gary Unger, joining the ranks of hockey players who were injured before training camp and were expected to miss uh, significant time. We had an up-close look at the Maple Leafs acquisition of all-time great goaltender Jacques Plante and the Montreal Canadiens named Al McNeil as their new assistant coach. Or would that be coach-in-waiting? We wondered if Al was brought along just to provide a safety net if Claude Ruel underwent a full meltdown beyond repair and had to be removed. That remains to be determined. This week, there's an abundance of hockey news with NHL training camps getting underway. And here are some of the main stories that we're bringing this week. Ted Green of the Boston Bruins is going to talk about how he's feeling as he attempts to return to the NHL after missing all of last season with that fractured skull. We'll talk about what might really be going on in Detroit and how that curious Ned Harkness hiring actually might have taken place. And we'll also get some insight this week on the way Alan Eagleson does business and how there were red flags even in the fall of 1970 that very few of us saw as warnings of what to the Eagle was uh, usually up to, basically self-serving and not having players' interests front of mind. A lot of hockey news to get to this week, lots to talk about, so let's get to it right away. 
An early standout at the New York Rangers training camp in Kitchener, Ontario, is winger Jack Eagers. Jack is a swift forward who played his junior A hockey in Kitchener, where the Rangers training camp is, of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series, and he's a native of Sudbury, Ontario. Jack is known for his booming slap shot, and he is so proficient at it even at an early age. He led the OHA Junior A in scoring in his final season, netting uh, 53 goals. Jack led the Central Hockey League in scoring last year, which was his first professional season with 42 goals, 48 assists for 90 points. He also got into sixth game with the Rangers last year, scoring his first three NHL goals. And he's been popping in goals at a good pace in the early Rangers scrimmages. Rangers GM coach Emil Francis uh, is one of several NHL GMs who are pushing for the league to increase roster sizes to 17 skaters and two goalkeepers. At this point in time in the NHL, they allow 16 skaters plus the netminders to dress. The cat thinks that with the rigors of a now 78-game schedule and all the significant travel involved, another skater on the ice would benefit both the players and the teams. Francis reasons, quite correctly I might add, that all NHL teams carry extra bodies throughout the regular season. The Rangers will have one extra player with the team this year, and some keep as many as three extra men around. Francis suggests that if a player is going to be with the team traveling all over North America, you might as well justify his salary by putting him to work every night. Of course, there's other motivation for Francis' request to enlarge rosters. Nobody does anything just because it's a good idea. It's got to be self-serving as well. And of course, this is for, for the Rangers. Being able to keep extra bodies around and put them to work would enable the Rangers to uh, keep players that otherwise might have to be sent to the minors. And of course, that means keeping them away from waivers. The downside of this request for the league is that players who would otherwise be available to weaker clubs through the waiver process will now be able to be hoarded by the stronger teams. And I don't think that's ever a good idea. Charlie Burns is back with the Minnesota North Stars this year as a player after last year's abortive run as the team's coach. That didn't work out so well for Charlie, but with the talent provided uh, to him by general manager Ren Blair, Burns really couldn't be blamed for the team's poor performance. Charlie has put it all behind him now, and he's ready to resume his playing career. Charlie says that last season uh, was last season. He says, I don't even think about it anymore. What I'm trying to do up here is nail down a spot in the hockey club and prove I can help the team. Charlie says he's got a two-year contract and he wants to play it out with the North Stars. Two North Star players suffered injuries during during the early Minnesota workouts at their training camp, which is being held, by the way, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Veteran uh, Murray Oliver, who was picked up from the Maple Leafs in a trade in the offseason, suffered a Charlie horse, had to sit for a couple days, and second-year winger Bobby Whitlock suffered what appears to be a serious knee injury. Looks like torn knee cartilage. Uh, and he's going to miss some time. By the way, we'll have a bit more on Murray Oliver uh, later in the show. 
Walter McKechnie is one of those young players who's showing very well with Minnesota so far. He's working on a line with Oliver and Bob Barlow, a veteran who um, finally broke into the NHL last year in his mid-30s. Another star's line showing promise had young center Jude Druin lining up between left winger Jean-Paul Parise and right winger Danny Lawson. One interesting tidbit from North Stars coach Jackie Gordon was that he was thinking of moving center Danny O'Shea over to the wing since the team does have a number of solid centers in camp this year. It also looks like veteran Bobby Russo inquired in yet another offseason trade, this one uh, from Montreal. He spent most of his career as a right winger with Canadians. He could be lining up at center with the North Stars this year. In the Toronto training camp at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, coach Johnny McClellan was all smiles after the first weekend of Leaf's workouts and scrimmages. He said that the team is already in better condition than it was at the end of last year's training camp in Peterborough. McClellan really likes winger Gary Monahan, whom he picked up uh, from the Los Angeles Kings just a couple weeks ago in the trade that set venture Bobby Pulford to Los Angeles. McClellan said that Britt Selby and Monaghan tangled on Saturday. It finally became a real grudge deal and they had a brief scuffle and McClellan says that's the sign of a good training camp. Johnny said Monaghan is starting to look good hitting, skating and generally acting as if he wants to play on this hockey team and of course why wouldn't he? An unherited Toronto rookie who also earned attention is former Marlboro Jr. Steve King. Steve started out with the Tulsa squad in camp, but a superior effort has him promoted to the Leafs main group where he's working on a line with Mike Walton and Selby and he has not looked out of place. Two other kids whom McClellan figures will make the team at least later in the season, if not right out of camp, are wingers Bobby Liddington and Brian Marchenko. Liddington scored 22 goals with Tulsa last season, while Marchenko had 8 goals, 14 assists for 22 points in 59 games with the same team. As the week unfolded at Maple Leaf Gardens, the first two Leafs injuries were Selby, making a lot of news this week, with a muscle pull, and Norm Ullman had to take some time off as he tweaked the groin. You know, even the best of NHL organizations, they can slip up from time to time. Here's what happened to former Boston College forward Kevin Ahern last week. Kevin spends a summer working as a greenskeeper at Wollaston Golf Club near Boston. Uh, he received a call from the pro, pro shop and was asked to report there. And on the other end of the line was the Montreal Canadiens general manager, Sammy Pollock. He was there to, on the phone to tell Kevin that he had been drafted in June by the Canadiens. And where was he? He had been expected at training camp in Montreal. Well, the funny part was Kevin had no idea he had been drafted by Canadians. Someone in the Montreal front office had neglected to contact Ahern to inform him that he had been selected by Montreal in June, and he absolutely had no idea he was supposed to be there. Uh, needless to say, Kevin Ahern packed up his gear and got his butt to Montreal pronto. 
Canadians were, by the way, one of the first teams to get everyone under contract for the 1970-71 season. The last two fellas signed this week, they were Ralph Backstrom and Mickey Redmond. Backstrom's signing was particularly good news for Coach Claude Ruel, or maybe it wasn't. We don't really know for sure. Ralph had arrived in training camp and informed the team that he was quitting hockey. He was uh, hanging them up. Well, Sam Pollock met with uh, Ralph and convinced him to stick around for a few days uh, to mull it over. And that seemed to work. You know, the air in the arena, the sound of the puck slapping on the boards, all those things. Ralph uh, reconsidered and said he's going to give his career one more year. Now, Backstrom is one of the many Habs veterans who last season seemed to be at odds with Coach Ruel. And you have to wonder if all this is leading up to a trade for Ralph, as was the case with veterans Dick Duff and in the summer, Bobby Russo. A hot rumor that surfaced later in the week had Backstrom being sent to the expansion Vancouver Canucks with, what else, a first-round pick coming back to Montreal. Serge Savard, the Canadian's fine young defenseman who's been recovering from a broken lake, had his first workout on skates with the team and that didn't go quite as well as Serge had hoped. The legs stood up fine, but uh, Savard found he was absolutely exhausted after about a half hour of skating on his own. Uh, he has a ways to go. Uh, team doctors figure he's at least two weeks away from joining regular workouts. Out in Vancouver, actually in Calgary, where the Vancouver Canucks are hosting their training camp, there weren't really a lot of surprises uh, as the workouts began. Uh, uh, the players who are being relied upon heavily, Captain Orland Curtinback, rookie number one draft pick, Dale Talent, those guys were impressive, and that was expected. Uh, two fellas who were not expected to make the team, however, were showing up pretty well. Rookie defenseman John Shella and the Canucks' third pick in the June amateur draft, goalie Ed Dick, who played for Calgary Centennials in the Western Canada League last year, stood out very well. Shell is a big tough kid and he showed it in the early scrimmages. He was acquired with the 16th pick in the uh, Vancouver expansion draft from Montreal. He was with Denver, the Western Hockey League, last year. As the week went on, uh, it found, we found that Coach Hal Laco of the Canucks was using that rookie Dale Talon as a defenseman. But general manager Bud Poyle was quick to point out to Calgary Herald reporter George Billich that the Canucks will need talent at center rather than on the blue line and that Dale's status as a rear guard is completely temporary. Poyle said that Talon would be back at center the very next day and he said I'm sure he'll be there when we play Minnesota this weekend. Poyle said they just wanted to see Talon on defense and now they know he's capable of playing there if they need him. Doesn't sound like Dale Talon has any future as a rear guard in the NHL. We told you last week about uh, the case of Vancouver's second amateur draft pick defenseman Jim Hargraves, who refused their contract offer and opted to forego practices, as was his right under the collective bargaining agreement. Well, this week Jim showed up at camp 
Although he still hasn't signed a contract, the rumor is that Hargraves, through his advisor, lawyer, and former Canadian national teammate Gary Begg, is seeking a deal worth $60,000, and if that's true, it would place him at least on a par with Talon, Vancouver's first-round pick. There's nobody in the hockey world who believes that those players on an equal basis talent-wise and would deserve the same contract. Hargraves is hoping that by actively participating in the Canucks scrimmages, he can put his considerable talent on display for the Canucks brass and justify commanding that huge deal. Or it could backfire on the kid. It looks like the Los Angeles Kings are having trouble signing star setter Eddie the Jet Joyal. Eddie, through a lawyer not named Eagleson, has declared himself a free agent because he says the Kings did not live up to a clause in his contract whereby they were to pay him a $1,000 bonus if he, quote, had a good season last year. Eddie scored only 18 goals in 69-70, but he only played 59 games due to injuries. His lawyer says that 18 goals in the NHL in that number of games constitutes a, quote, good season, and therefore the bonus is due. The lawyer, fellow by the name of Charles L. Abrahams of Parts Unknown, uh, cites a clause in the standard agreement that apparently says a player is released from all obligations to a team if said team fails to provide any required payment to said player. The problem here, of course, is that the term good season is not clearly defined. If this were to go to NHL President Clarence Campbell for a decision, you know how that's going to go. Eddie Joyal had better get ready to suit up for the LA Kings. The Buffalo Sabres have their first training camp casualty, and it's a goaltender. Norman Rocky Farr, one of the two netminders that GM Punch Imlach took in the expansion draft, suffered a fractured cheekbone when he was hit by a deflected puck during shooting drills. Walk-on tryout Ed Huckstra launched the missile, which skipped off defenseman Alan Hamilton's stick and struck Farr's mask, knocking him to the ice. That mask probably saved the 23-year-old goalkeeper from being killed. Rocky said he don't, doesn't know what would have happened if he hadn't had the mask on. Far as one of five professional goalies with the Sabres in training camp, with the others being Roger Crozier, Dave Dryden, Joe Daly, and the Sabres' other expansion pick, Gary Edwards. Sabres got more bad news a day later when Hamilton, who of course played a role in Farr's injury, sustained a hairline fracture of a small bone in his left foot when he blocked the shot fired by fellow defenseman Jim Watson. Al's going to miss about 10 days of workouts in the Buffalo camp. The Blackhawks were one of the last teams to begin training and they did so at their home rink of Chicago Stadium on the weekend. There was just one absence, but it was a big one. Center Stan Makita. 
Stosh, as he's known to his teammates, opted to skip opening workouts because he hasn't yet agreed to his contract. General Manager Tommy Ivan professed not to be too worried, but nonetheless, he would not comment on Makita's status. Under the new National Hockey League NHLPA agreement, any unsigned player has the option of staying away from workouts until he signs a contract. So Makita's only exercise is agreed upon rights. We wonder if Stan will stay out a little longer. Last year it was Bobby Hull who held out, but Hull signed a two-year deal, so he's obligated to be at camp this year. Maybe uh, Stan is pulling a Bobby play this time. We'll have to look and see. Hawks defenseman Pat Stapleton is still recovering from that serious knee injury he suffered last season, but he was present in camp. But he didn't go on ice for the official workouts. Pat says he feels great, but he's waiting on the okay from team doctors before strapping on the gear. The Hawks have three Czechoslovakian players in their training camp. Left winger Miroslav Gojanovic, center Rudy Hitty, and goalkeeper Anton Gale, who made a name for himself last spring when he beat the Russians at the World Championships. A very pleasant surprise in the early days of the Boston Bruins training camp was goalkeeper Daniel Bouchard. Daniel is a uh, young uh, goalkeeper from Quebec who played for the London Knights in the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series last year and he was picked by the Bruins in the amateur draft. Bouchard and indeed the rest of the Bruins netminders all seem to be benefiting from a change in philosophy instituted by new coach of the Bruins Tom Johnson. Tom's emphasis is on defensive play and it looks like everybody is buying in. Johnson by the way named first round pick Reggie Leach as the most impressive of the rookie skaters in the Bruins camp so far and the best of the veteran forwards. That would be center Freddie Stanfield, who this year seems to have found an extra gear as he gets going in the early games. The Bruins did have a couple of early injuries uh, on defense to deal with. Don Ory pulled a thigh muscle, and if you've ever had that happen, that's darn painful. He had to take a few days off, but the news was a little more concerning about defenseman Billy Spear. Bill had complained about not feeling well, and uh, he had a medical check to reveal his blood pressure was abnormally, actually dangerously low. The Bruins held Bill out of uh, workouts for a couple of days, but everything seemed to return to normal, and he was allowed to rejoin scrimmages, but they kept a real close eye on him. Bruins captain Johnny Busick reported about a week late that was planned, as he was told by doctors to let his lacerated knee have an extra week to heal. And when he showed up on the ice, he looked none the worse for wear. John injured the knee when he fell on a boat windshield while vacationing in British Columbia. And Bruins defenseman Ted Green talked this week about how his comeback to the NHL is going. Ted, you'll remember, missed all of last season after nearly losing his life when he suffered a fractured skull in a stick-swinging duel with Wayne Mackey, who then played for the St. Louis Blues in an exhibition game in Ottawa, and that took place nearly a year ago. 
Ted told Milt Dunnell of the Toronto Star that immediately after he began to recover from his injuries last fall, he saw no reason why he wouldn't be able to return to the ice with no loss of the skill or determination he possessed prior to the injury. And you know what? It would appear that Ted was right. Green says the only difference anybody's going to notice between the Ted Green that was uh, on the ice prior to his injury and the Ted Green they'll see this year is the black helmet that he'll sport during games. Doctors have assisted that Ted wear the protective headgear, and he's completely willing to go along with that, given the nightmare he lived last season. Dunnell asked Green if he would be the same player he was before the injury, and this is his answer. Ted says, I won't be as good. I'll be better. Look, I'm not just talking. I never have been in this kind of condition for a training camp before. This time, I'm really, really ready. Ted said one of his main motivators was when doctors told him a little over six months ago that he would never again have the full use of his left arm. That prompted him to embark on an intensive training program that not only brought back the arm strength, but it also benefited his entire body. Ted says he's now in better shape than he's ever been in his entire life and he's smarter and better able to use his physical abilities to his advantage. One more thing that Ted told Milt Dunnell and it concerns the wearing of the helmet. Ted says, I'm not going to be a crusader for helmets. Most of the helmets on the market are junk. I don't have to wear a helmet, but I'd be pretty stupid if I didn't wear one, right? Right. Well, a report on the National Hockey League, uh, a weekly report wouldn't be complete without another goofy story from who else, the Oakland Seals. This time, this week, the Seals apparently, in a unilateral decision by owner Charles O. Finley, have announced that they're changing the team name. Finley says the Oakland National Hockey League team will now be known as the, quote, Bay Area Seals. Sounds very similar to a certain roller derby franchise, doesn't it? Maybe this not-so-subtle shot at Jerry Seltzer, the roller derby magnet who complete competed with Finley uh, in the contest to win the Seals franchise uh, for, in the National Hockey League. All Seals team stationery now refers to the club simply as the Seals, the Bay Area's hockey team. Finley has ordered all posters and other means of advertising to feature the team as the Bay Area Seals. The uh, Pittsburgh Penguins training camp was going on with very little fanfare. In fact, very few headlines. But General Manager Coach Red Kelly did provide us this week with a bit of an update on the condition of Michelle Briere. Michelle, you know, has been in hospital since being gravely injured in a car accident last May. Michelle was scheduled this week to undergo major brain surgery, but his parents had reported that he was showing some improvement. Most encouraging was the fact that uh, Michelle had regained some weight. He's back up to 135 pounds after hovering around 110 for a number of weeks. Uh, Breer's playing weight last year was between 155 and 160 pounds. Doesn't look good for Michelle Breer ever coming back to the National Hockey League. And he was an exciting young talent that we will miss. 
One of the more curious franchises in the National Hockey League right now is that of the Detroit Red Wings. They hired a new coach out of the college ranks in Ned Harkness. While Harkness this week was crowing about how well Gordie Howe has adapted to playing defense in early Red Wing scrimmages, Harkness said, I can't say enough for the way Gordie has taken to defense. He looks like he's been playing there all his life. Well, most hockey observers thought that Harkness was exhibiting a bit of excess enthusiasm, like the old college try kind of thing. Of course, that would come from college, wouldn't it? Gordy, if you've ever watched him play, is a right winger, but you could actually often describe him as a rover. He played everywhere. He was where he needed to be. Gordy won't be able to play that way if he wants to play defense in the National Hockey League, wandering, unless you're Bobby Orr, really isn't the way that the game is to be played. Regular rear guards, especially a guy who has not played defense a lot, will have to stay at home a little more often. We'll have to see how this develops for the team. Yet another uh, Harkness innovation for the Red Wings. All players, that is all skaters, will wear ankle guards this year and already we're hearing rumblings that many of the forwards don't like the new equipment and don't want to wear it. But they can't talk to Harkness because he has just basically said to players, boys, it's my way or the highway. And you got to wonder, how did Harkness get so much sway with the Red Wings coming basically out of nowhere, at least as far as the National Hockey League is concerned. Jack Dolmage, the sports editor of the Windsor Star, and he's covered the Red Wings for years right across the river from Detroit. He has some ideas on all this, and Jack, a very wise veteran sports observer, seems to be able to see through all the smoke and mirrors that the Red Wings are putting up to determine exactly what's going on in Detroit. Jack Dolmage says that if the Red Wings get stuck for a coach, that is if Harkness falls flat on his face, as many predict he will, they can always call on Jim Bishop. Or, says uh, Dolmage, maybe Jim Bishop could just call on Jim Bishop. Bishop, who's 41 and a native of Toronto, was appointed the executive director of the Red Wings and Olympia Stadium about a year ago by owner Bruce Norris. Since then, Bill Gadsby was dismissed from the Detroit Hockey Organization, actually in two stages. Harkness, uh, a hockey and lacrosse coach at Cornell University, was hired. Carl Brewer is retired, and the Windsor Clippers won the Canadian Senior B Lacrosse Championship. And this is all related. Dolmage says that not all of these events are directly attributable to Bishop, but you know what? They all are connected in some way. There isn't any question Bishop has uh, inserted a new dimension into and between the affairs of the Red Wings and their home stadium, the Olympia. And there's no question that he played the dominant role in shaping and finally coaching the Junior B team in Windsor to the uh, National Lacrosse Championship. In the Red Wing uh, listing of their hierarchy and management, Bishop last year ranked third behind owner Bruce Norris and the vice president of the team, Mrs. Margaret Norris Riker. He actually outranked general manager Sid Abel, who was fourth 
on the management ladder. Now, here's something that uh, Dolmage found out that is really intriguing and makes you wonder what's going on there. Bishop outranks the hockey general manager, but he is outranked by the Olympia building managers. It's doubtless the way Norris wants it, whether as an evolutionary step or because he was unhappy about the way things had gone previously. No one knows how Bruce Norris actually thinks. Norris is an absentee owner. He lives in suburban Chicago and a lot of the winter in Florida. He isn't too predictable other than when he makes moves, it's always very suddenly. He was sudden when he fired Jack Adams, sudden when he fired Gadsby twice, and he appears more interested in coordination than competence. But then he has any number of fraternal partners, other NHL owners, who, who think the same way. This is the reason that the hiring of Harkness was probably done by Bishop and not by General Manager Abel. Whether this also means the administration establishment built up by Abel from the time of the late Jack Adams' ouster is in jeopardy, only time's going to tell, I guess. Right now, and if you're a Detroit hockey fan, right now, like it or not, this fellow who's not a hockey executive, Jim Bishop, seems to be in control of the Red Wing ship. He's a longtime lacrosse buddy of Ned Harkness, and that's why this guy is on the team completely untried as a pro, and it looks like he's going to be there for a while, and the Red Wings' future is depending on these non-hockey guys running the show. Here's a story that as I sit here in the year 2020, I look back on 50 years. Uh, I wish we had all seen uh, what were warning signs, I guess, back then. Hindsight, of course, is 2020, and we'll talk about this now. I like to report the stories usually as if uh, I'm hearing them for the first time myself without really knowing context or how things were going to turn out. But this one, you have to report it with an eye towards what would be the future 50 years ago. The National Hockey League was considering a new contract dispute arbitration system to settle differences between players and their teams when it comes to how much uh, players should be paid when they disagree on a contract offer made by a team. The New York Rangers, especially General Manager Emil the Cat Francis, were having trouble getting four key players to sign on the dotted line. Those players were significant. Defenseman Brad Park, centers Walter Kachuk and Jean Rattel, and left winger Vic Hadfield. The Rangers could not do without those four for any uh, period of time. Francis suggested that the league appoint National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell and National Hockey League Players Association Executive Director Alan Eagleson as a committee of two to be given the authority to adjudicate and meet out arbitration decisions which would be binding to both sides. Well, this idea was not going over well with all sides and the issue was not with Campbell. Eagleson is the problem and not for reasons that you might imagine. It's not the National Hockey League owners that don't want the Eagle making these decisions, but rather other National Hockey League player agents. Yes, you heard that right. The other agents don't want Eagleson working on arbitration cages. Why? Why? 
would that be? It seems that attorneys representing nine National Hockey League players who have ongoing salary disputes are challenging the fairness of the present and proposed arbitration systems and one lawyer has threatened court action to force the Minnesota North Stars to open negotiations for center Murray Oliver's contract. General Manager of the North Stars, Ren Blair, refuses to budge on his offer to the former Maple Leaf Center, who was acquired from Toronto, of course, in that off-season trade. Pro Sports Incorporated, a sports agency out of New York City, who represents the Rangers' four players mentioned earlier, says that Alan Eagleson has a significant conflict of interest in every case of a player whom he does not represent. Steve Arnold, an executive with Pro Sports Inc., asks how can Eagleson arbitrate when he's a competitor of our company? For example, he can come back next year and tell a player like Park that he could have done better if he'd uh, been represented by himself. He could make it sound like it's Brad Park's best interest to fire Pro Sports Inc. and go with Alan Eagleson. In the Oliver case, Minnesota General Manager Ren Blair has snubbed Pro Sports Inc., but seems to be willing to negotiate with Eagleson. That outfit, Pro Sports, which also handles football, baseball, and basketball stars, has been told by the National Hockey League office that no club is obligated to talk to an agent. Arnold went on to say if the North Stars refuse to negotiate Oliver's contract We'll regard it as tantamount to their releasing the player. We'll make him a free agent. And if necessary, we're going to take legal recourse. It doesn't look like the case of the Rangers players or Murray Oliver is going to be settled anytime soon, does it? A similar situation exists in Boston where the Bruins can't come to terms with players such as Derek Sanderson and Jerry Cheevers. Two fine players, stars, if you will. They're both represented by Boston agent Bob Wolf, a very prominent lawyer. Bruins have recommended NHL arbitration, but Wolf steadfastly refuses using the same grounds as Pro Sports has. But Wolf has a curious solution and it really makes you wonder where this one is coming from. Wolf has proposed as an arbitrator for Sanderson and Cheever's contract woes as Montreal Canadiens general manager Sammy Pollock. Wolf was asked, why on earth would you recommend a rival GM? And he says, I was impressed enough with him to believe he'd be fair and knowledgeable. Who'd have thunk that? Given how Sam Pollock gerrymandered two expansion drafts, to ensure his Montreal Canadian would benefit rather than be hurt by both expansion processes. It's not easy to see how other NHL governors or teams would go for that. But then again, they let Pollock design the drafts, didn't they? Even though Bob Wolf would like to have Sammy Pollock present to arbitrate these cases, the Boston Bruins are never going to let Sammy Pollock determine the future of some of their players, are they? Fat chance of that happening.
And we leave you this week with one final nugget. This comes out of the Vancouver Canucks training camp. And it's uh, just how Bud Poyle views some things. Bud's the general manager of the Canucks. Rosaire Paymont reported the training camp and he brought along a friend who, Rosie says, is a pretty darn good hockey player. The boy's last name was Cloutier. None of those who were around could gather the kid's first name. Uh, Bud Poyle was asked the question about who this young Cloutier kid was and Bud says, I don't care what his first name is, he's going home anyway. Cloutier, age unknown, was only about five foot three. He was maybe 120 pounds, probably less. And Vancouver hockey writer Tom Watt described him as looking like a jockey trying to catch his horse. As the week went on, Cloutier caught a ride back home and we never did learn the first name of the young Cloutier player trying out for the Canucks. So that's our show this week. Uh, Lots of news going on. I wish we could have brought it all to you. There's so much more. Uh, What did we learn as the month of September goes on and that we're getting closer to the start of exhibition games? We learned about the various issues and stories emerging as the NHL teams all had their training camps underway. Uh, We heard about injuries and about rookies who are making a name in the early going. We heard from Bruins defenseman Ted Green how he's feeling as he attempts to come back from the NHL after a year off due to injury. And we learned that there are some people in 1970 who recognize that Alan Eagleson may not have the best interests of all NHL players at heart as he uh, insinuates himself even more into the hockey landscape. Next week, we're going to have a lot more reporting from training camps as the teams begin to take shape and exhibition results start coming in. We'll also talk about another injury scare for Bobby Orr, and it's not his knee. And several high-profile NHL players will continue to be engaged in contract disputes and we'll see even more signs that Alan Eagleson was more of a self-serving clod that didn't really have the best interests of all NHL players at heart. And everyone with now the, the benefit of hindsight could have seen what was to come later on. And of course, there's going to be a lot more news as well. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we can't thank him enough for all of his hard work on this project. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction and exit music, and if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, they put on a great high-energy show. They are back practicing now and are hoping to produce a new album in the very near future. Other musical pieces and sound effects during the podcast are produced by Andy as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us every day on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. And we have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. Of course, you can get us at your favorite podcast site, and we're even on YouTube now. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into the show. Lots of stuff coming up for the upcoming season, and we're happy to bring it to you. And on that note, 
we will see you next time. When the